Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, this is our final show of the year, so tell the folks who's on. Author Zoe Sharp says something we've never heard from a guest before. That's a very interesting question. And we talked to writer Matthew Fitzsimmons, even though he tried to warn us before his interview. It's a dump. Like, don't do it. Like, your day is going to be really bad. And author Sheena Kamal brings the holiday spirit to writer types. Do you trust humans? People are the worst. All that plus a talk with debut author Chuck Caruso and a whole host of reviewers from magazines, newspapers, and websites give us their year-end picks for favorite reads. And Steve, I know you and I both read some great books this year, but let's be good hosts and we'll let our guests have the first say. But, but aren't they going to pick all the good books? I, I think they probably are. Fine. This is Kira Graff, executive editor of Booklist and co-editor of Montana Noir, out now from Akashic Books. Two of my favorite crime fiction novels published in 2017 are Safe by Ryan Gaddis and She Rides Shotgun by Jordan Harper. I gave them starred reviews. Both were exhilarating reads that reminded me reading for work doesn't always have to feel like work. In She Rides Shotgun, I loved the way Harper handled the delicate authorial act of making the vengeful Khan's partner his 11-year-old daughter. In lesser hands, it could have felt icky or exploitative, but instead I found myself cheering on her criminal coming of age. And in Safe, Gaddis took what is a truly tired crime trope, the criminal seeking redemption, and rendered it so freshly that it felt like the first time I'd come across it. I loved the way he sets it during the subprime mortgage crisis, too. The biggest score of our hero's life pales in comparison to what Lehman Brothers is taking down. But above all, this novel worked because of the humanity of the characters. In 2018, I'm really, really looking forward to Megan Abbott's Give Me Your Hand, coming in July. I usually review her books for Booklist, but a colleague snagged this one first, so I'll have the chance to read it as a fan. Those are definitely some of my favorites of the year, too. And three guests we had on Writer Types. It has been an incredible year. And, man, we have been so lucky to have such an amazing array of writers on the show. And we're not even done. No, we are not. And here's further proof. We talked with Zoe Sharp, author of the Charlie Fox series, which is 12 books deep with no signs of slowing down. We caught up with her from her home in the U.K., Zoe, your main character, Charlotte Charlie Fox, she's capable of kicking a whole lot of ass. So we want to know, how are your ass-kicking skills? (laughs) Well, I learned an awful lot of self-defense and cherry-picked from various different types of martial arts. No particular discipline, but uh, the guy who taught me was a black belt in karate. He did a lot of kaiushu jitsu, which is pressure point techniques. Uh, He did a lot of knife work and a friend of mine does a lot of ninjutsu. So I've picked up bits and pieces from all over the place. You've created your own discipline. There's there's now the Zoe Sharp discipline of martial arts. (laughs) Well, it's always kind of useful to add in different things that you know will work for a character. And particularly when you're facing an opponent that's likely to be much bigger and much heavier than you are. And and nice to know that you can walk into a room and and kill anyone there if if need be in real life. (laughs) Yeah, 
I did once have a guy walk up to me, complete stranger in a bar at, at the Harrogate Crime Festival, and said, ah, Zoe Sharp, I understand you could kill me with your thumbs. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'd only use the one thumb. <laughs> so you're pretty ruthless with Charlie. Do you ever feel guilty about the situations that you put her in? Yes. <laughs> I keep promising, hey, maybe in the next book I'll give her an easier time, and somehow they never quite turn out that way. I don't set out to be so horrible to her, but she just keeps walking into these situations. And you have to keep giving your characters challenges. I hope I never end up in one of these bizarre alternate universes where our characters come back to haunt us, because <laughs> uh, I am so buried if she ever turns up. <laughs> I think Eric and I would agree with you there with the characters we've created as well. Yeah. Now, I've, I was fascinated to learn that you also uh, really love fast cars. Do you have a favorite? Is there what, What's your dream ride? Uh, it changes a lot. Possibly these days, one of the new, the Gullwing SL Mercedes. Uh-huh. I used to be involved with writing about cars and photographing very fast cars so at the time it was the skyline gtr the nissan skyline gtr was one of the fastest cars especially they were very easy to play with and a lot of people played with them (laughs) that i used to go to an event called 10 of the best where they regularly got them over 200 miles an hour we mentioned your love for photography a second ago we have what we think is an esoteric question for you Is there any similarity between capturing a moment in time in a photo and capturing a moment on the page? Do you think in snapshots? I think there's a lot of similarity, actually. That's a very interesting question. I used to do a lot of location photography, and I would be traveling to an area I didn't know. So it teaches you to look at places in a very different way, and you take in all those details very quickly And I write, I see very visually when I'm writing. I'm watching a movie in my head. And I hope when people read it, they're watching the same movie. But I don't go into reams and reams of description about, you know, what's on somebody's desk. And for me, that is, it is a snapshot. In your latest book, Fox Hunter, uh, Charlotte goes to the Middle East I wonder, mm-hmm. how do you choose the locations that you send her to for, for a book? Uh, well, partly I've been to the Middle East, and it was such a fascinating place. Uh, it just cried out to be used in a book. And also, you always end up with, in, in a, a crime book, a, a MacGuffin of some description. There's always something that people want, and either your main character has to go out and get or stop other people from getting. The more closely tied to the location that your MacGuffin is, I think the stronger the story. And without giving any plot spoilers, the the MacGuffin in this book, the reason for her being in that area was completely tied to the location. So it it made it a very strong tie-in. I don't just like to kind of stick a pin in a map and say, hey, I'll set a book there. You know, it really helps, I think, if the story is embedded in the location. I love, there was a thing you said once uh, regarding opening chapters in a book, and you said the start of the book is never the start of the story. And I really like that, but I wonder if you can kind of explain what that really means. 
Well, the the story starts, you know, if if for example you're writing a um, a fairly straightforward murder mystery, the the story normally starts with the policeman standing over the body, but that's way way further into the story because who is the victim? Why have they been killed? You know, so the story started way further back than that. And it's where you choose to invite the reader to join you in the story that's very, very interesting to me. And I like particularly, I've used occasionally flash-forward openings where I take a section from later on in the book and use that as the opening. There was one particular book I did called Second Shot, and it doesn't give any plot spoilers away to, to say that Charlie gets shot twice on the first page. And that comes, you know, at a later point in the book. Some people assumed it was the end, but actually it's it's kind of, I think, from memory, about around chapter 13. Um, and you could literally move 12 and 14 apart and drop the first chapter into that gap. Zoe, this has been a fantastic conversation, and we're thrilled that we were able to make the transatlantic connection with you today. But before we let you go, we're going to put you on the spot because all writers are also readers. So we're wondering if there's one book that you read in 2017 that you would recommend for our listeners. I only discovered, and I was late to the party with this guy, a guy called Harry Bingham. It's a police procedural set in Wales in in the U.K., Uh, He has a main character who has a particular psychiatric disorder that she feels dead. She associates with with the dead more than the living. And it's a really interesting quirk for a character to have. And sorry, I'm I'm going to go. There's there's loads of these. But a book by Susan Wolfe as well called Escape Velocity. And it's about the daughter of a con man who was being trained up by her father to kind of go into the family business and translates those skills into corporate America. Corporate America is a good place for a con man. (laughs) Yeah, I think she feels very at home there. Oh, (laughs) did I say... I always love to know what other authors are reading, don't you? It's like the same way that I always wanted to know who my favorite bands are listening to. Well, we got in touch with another reviewer for his year-end picks, Hope you have your pens out to write all of these down. Hi, this is Craig Sisterson calling from London, England. I review and write features for Mystery Scene, the New Zealand Herald, and several other publications around the world. Here are two of my favourite reads from 2017. A Killer Harvest by Paul Cleave. A blind teenager can finally see thanks to an eye transplant from his police detective father, killed in the line of duty. Now he has violent visions that seem like memories and is stalked by a vengeful killer. Just what was his father into? Cleve's writing crackles with a vicious energy. This is a darkly hypnotic tale powered by its rich characterization as much as its high concept hook. The Long Drop by Denise Minor. A beautifully written novel inspired by a bizarre real-life incident from Scottish history. The night notorious serial killer Peter Manuel went on a drinking binge across Glasgow with the husband and father of two murder victims, each man playing cat and mouse with the other. Minor reimagines what may have happened in the missing hours of that night, delivering an atmospheric tale with rich insights into 1950s Glasgow life. Looking ahead to 2018, I know I'm supposed to pick a book, but the crime tale I'm most excited about is actually a brand new television drama, Hard Sun. 
I saw the first episode at a special screening this week, and it's brilliant. Two London cops fight crime and each other while stumbling onto a state secret that the world will end in five years' time. It's from the creator of Emmy Award-winning Luther, and the great writing, acting, and visuals of the first episode have me really looking forward to seeing the entire season next year. Well, now I'm very excited about those books as well as that TV show. He had me hooked as soon as he said by the creators of Luther. That show was amazing. Well, our next guest has some amazing novels under his belt. Matthew Fitzsimmons is the author of the Gibson Vaughn series of thrillers, including The Short Drop, Poison Feather, and Cold Harbor. So Matt, you have quite the background. You're born in Illinois, raised in London. You've lived in China. You're literally a globetrotter. And I have to imagine that that kind of worldly experience would lead you to only one place, and that's writing political thrillers. Was there really only one choice when you sat down to write a novel? No, it was, it was interesting. There was such a, you know, so you got the guys who, you know, the, the retired cop or the, the you know, former uh, prosecutor you've got, you have people who sort of lean right into their area of expertise. And I'm a former high school English teacher. And to my knowledge, there are no thriller series with former English teachers, as <laughs> although maybe there should be. Since I had no special forces background, I, I could do whatever I wanted. I had the character, but I didn't know what he was going to be good at. Um, I don't know why I just made air quotes on a podcast, so <laughs> you can do with that what you will. Um, I also don't really think that they're political thrillers. I think that's, I mean, I, I think the first one has a political piece to it, but the rest really don't. For me, it was just really about writing up. It's such an author, lame thing to say, but I just feel like I was writing about people. So when I started out, I, I had this, you know, do you go the Simpsons model or do you go the serialized model? And by Simpsons, I mean, like, in any given episode of The Simpsons, Homer can blow up Springfield. And next Sunday night, Springfield's fine. Homer hasn't lost a job. There's no consequences to anything Homer ever does. And I kind of went the other way, and consequences have kind of accrued and followed from book to book. Okay, well, you referenced your protagonist, Gibson Vaughn. He's a computer hacker with a checkered past. Do you have any personal experience with computer hacking? So when I was writing the book, I, I was like 20,000 words into the first one. Still didn't know what my guy was going to be good at, what his like special set of skills or, you know, what his Liam Neeson quality was going to be. And uh, I was having dinner with a buddy who works for uh, General Dynamic. As one of the things they do is uh, InfoSec and security and so forth. And he started telling me stories about the Stuxnet virus which was the, the virus that the CIA, and, well, supposedly, they've never taken credit for it, but, but supposedly this is the virus that the CIA and the Israelis used to crash a Iranian nuclear reactor. And he was just telling stories about that and social engineering, and which, which I think is a fancy 21st century saying, con man. Like, that struck a chord with me. And I, I really always hated, like, have you ever seen the movie Swordfish? Yeah, John Travolta, yeah. That's always been the model of like hacking, which is, all right, I'm going to put a gun to your head and you need to hack this bank in 30 seconds, which isn't at all how it works. So my thought was like, what if I try and legitimately portray hacking as it actually occurs in the real world? So how do you keep a character like Gibson Vaughn evolving when you have to keep throwing him in jeopardy? So he's 28 when the books start. 
Gibson has this ex-wife, he has a daughter, and what he should do is get a job and start putting money away for her education. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I mean, (laughs) you know, be a good father. Come on, dude, let's let's get, get, let's go with the program. But he doesn't. And and you said you weren't political. (laughs) (laughs) The mystery of the 401k. (laughs) Right. Right, that would be that would be a thrill a minute. Being the hero of a thriller series is a really bad idea. <laughs> it's a dump. Like, don't do it. Like, it, you're going, your day is going to be really bad. Thriller writers, mystery writers are really mean to our guys or our, our, our ladies. Like, it's not fun. It's fun to go along on the ride, but it's not much fun to be the guy themselves. So, you have to get your hero to the point where they're going to do something that they really shouldn't do. Because without it, you don't have a book. Like your daughter, you're writing a thriller where the, where your kid gets kidnapped. You call the FBI. You do exactly what they tell them. Shut <laughs> up. Don't try and solve it yourself. That is a terrible, terrible idea. You have to get them to do something that is not the right thing to do without having the reader go, okay, this person's an idiot. Why didn't they call the FBI? I'm done and I'm out. <laughs> so is your goal to have your reader not think your character is an idiot? Little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys who watches a movie and kind of knows them. I mean, you guys are probably the same way. If you write this stuff, you get really good at like, okay, I know who Kaiser Soze is. <laughs> you know, like 10 minutes in, you're like, all right, this is, you know, you, you, you start diagramming out in your head. So I spent a lot of time not irritating myself by their decisions and not having them take logical leaves that that I just don't buy for, for two seconds. So I spent a good part of the first three books pushing Gibson into positions where they have no choice. I've sort of taken his options away, which is meant, I, you know, I've gotten a couple of like letters from like readers, like, I really like this book, but like, when is Gibson going to get laid? Like, when is he going <laughs> to, like, I had someone write me, I was like, could Gibson get a hug in the next book? Cause <laughs> you know, yeah, he could probably use like a, you know, a hug and a soak in the tub. And... <laughs> All right. So, Matt, it's uh, getting near the end of the year. This is our final episode of the year. Uh, we're going to ask for your recommendation for a book that you read in 2017 that uh, really stuck with you and that you want to recommend to other people. So I'm reading right now Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach, which is not a mystery thriller, but it is a mystery. There actually is a mystery piece to it. And it is unbelievable. It's just one of those books where like, you are such a better writer than I am. And I, it's one of those books where I stop and go back and go, all right, how did you do that? Like, how did you actually like make that effect? And she's so effortless and easy and smart. And I'm just like, okay, you're just better at this than I am. Well, that is the downside of reading a really great book is that feeling of inadequacy that follows. I know I feel that, but maybe that's why I like to read a really bad book every once in a while. Well, there are no bad books on our year-end wrap-up, so let's hear from another reviewer for some favorite reads from 2017. Hello, this is Erica Ruth Neubauer calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm a reviewer for Publishers Weekly and Mystery Scene Magazine. One of my favorite reads from 2017 was The Last Place You Look by Kristen LaPianca. It's a really strong debut novel with a female private investigator. The mystery was really engaging, and the PI, Roxanne Weary, is a welcome addition to all the PI novels already out there. She's just a really great character. 
Another of my favorites from this year was The Woman in the Camphor Trunk by Jennifer Kinchlow from 7th Street Books. It's set in early 1900s San Francisco, and the main character, Anna Blanc, is a former society girl turned police matron. It honestly made me laugh out loud. This is the second in the series, and the first is The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. And one of the books I'm most looking forward to in 2018 is A Treacherous Curse by Deanna Rayborn. It's the third in what is currently one of my absolute favorite series. Starring um, Veronica Speedwell, she's a sassy lepidopterist who works with another natural historian, Stoker, and they get embroiled in solving mysteries. She's a truly fantastic female protagonist, strong and witty and doesn't take a lot of shit. It comes out in January. No year-end list on this show would be complete without hearing from our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. All year long, they've given you recommendations on what to read, and now they pick some of their top books of the past 12 months. Dan's going to pick a comic, isn't he? Would you feel better if I lied to you? <laughs> no. We're here with a very special episode on which we are talking about some of our favorite reads from 2017. Here we are at the end of the year. It's almost Christmas time. It's almost Hanukkah. It's time for reflection. And so, Malmans, let's hear what were some of the books that really stuck with you in 2017. The book that stuck with me, I read last January. It was the first book I read of 2017, and it set the bar, and very few books hit that bar. And it's Lightwood by Steph Post. Oh, yes. Yeah, she does an amazing job with this really twisty, turny plot where there are three different storylines and it's a lot of double crossing. So a Pentecostal preacher loans money to a motorcycle gang to buy cocaine, of course. The local outlaw family finds out about it, robs them. So now everybody wants this money. Um, she does an amazing job balancing the three plot lines and the tension just rises with each chapter as there's more double crossing and people are doing bad things. And the only way it can end is it in fire and it does end in fire. I'm super excited for the follow-up book from her that comes out next year as well. So Dan, Kate's got preachers, cocaine and bikers. <laughs> what do you have for us? I'm, I'm still going to hang out on the comic book side of the fence. My favorite read of the year was four kids walk into a bank, which is a limited series put out by a smaller micropress called Black Mask Studios. And it was recently just collected uh, into hardcover and softcover. It was written by Matthew Rosenberg uh, with art by Tyler Boss. And it's the story of four preteens. These four kids, they hang out, they play role-playing games, they play video games, they swear a ton. I mean, they were just regular kids. But one day, uh, they're hanging out at Paige's house, and all of a sudden, a rough-and-tumble gang just barges into their house, into their living room kicks off with a very tense, stressful showdown. And it ends with uh, Paige's dad coming to the rescue with a shotgun. And actually, during the confrontation, Paige, the 11-year-old girl, gets punched in the face. So, I mean, it's serious, heavy-duty stuff. Turns out that the dad used to run with the gang. They're back. They want the dad to join him on a bank robbery. That's when the magic of the comic book medium uh, comes into place because the conversations and the discussions and the interplay are done as gigantic role-playing game fantasy sequences. The one kid is a dragon, the other kid is a wizard, the other kid's a barbarian. So it's this real synergistic mix that that really makes comics work. You say it's all collected in one volume now. Is it how big of a volume is this? It sounds like a, a pretty epic story. It's like 
180 pages. I mean, oh, it's, it's, so it's so it's tight and it's efficient. Yeah. All right. So we've looked in the rear view mirror at 2017. Let's uh, change our focus to the windshield now and look ahead to 2018. What, what's a book you guys are looking forward to reading next year? Sure. Debut novel by uh, Virginia's very own Amy Hicks, um, What Doesn't Kill You, put out by Minnesota's own Midnight Inc. Hicks has just written a real taut um, piece with a strong female protag, and, and I'm really looking forward to digging in. How about you, Kate? I'm looking forward to Meg Gardner's follow-up to Unsub, Into the Black Nowhere. It continues the story of Caitlin Hendricks, who now works for the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, so I'm super excited for that. I really, really enjoyed Unsub as well. I used to read a, more serial killer books, and then I just kind of got burnt out. And, and then you married one. Exactly. <laughs> it's always the one you least suspect. Yeah. But Unsub is the book that brought me back to enjoying that piece of crime fiction. So I'm, I'm super excited to see what she does next. Well, that's great. I, and I, I can tell you, I've actually had a, a sneak peek at uh, Steph Post's follow-up to Lightwood, A Walk in the Fire, and uh, you will not be disappointed. It is equally as great. So looks like awesome. 2018 is off to a good start. Absolutely. Well, all right. I will admit that Dan's comic pick does sound intriguing. Uh, maybe my New Year's resolution should be to read more comics. A book that's been on several year-end lists is The Lost Ones by Sheena Kamal. Sheena spoke with us from Vancouver, Canada, where we had barely hit record, and she was already talking about serenading wildlife with Rihanna songs. I, you just have to listen to this one to believe it. We're going to make you sing Rihanna's oh greatest God, hits. No, no, you don't want to hear that. Like, I have scared wildlife trying to sing. <laughs> like, there was one time I was, because um, I, I go for long walks, it's part of my writing process, and so I, I went for this really long walk, and I was sitting on the rocks by the ocean, and I was just singing, you know, alone, and um, and then the seal sort of popped up and glared at me. It gave me, like, the dirtiest look ever, <laughs> and then I dove back down, and I was like, oh my god, I have offended the seal. It was just <laughs> like what is this screeching wow now yeah. in my version of this story that was the 80s and 90s musician seal <laughs> all of a sudden the singer's seal just pops up and is like you're butchering rihanna like stop it he's just like nope <laughs> that would have been amazing I pictured it as an actual uh, marine seal, but I just w thought that that's amazing because they're actually used to screeching seagulls 24 <laughs> seven. Right, so it must be really the terrible. Yeah. All right. And then for the final version of the story, it's a Navy seal. <laughs> actually, you know what? I like the singer seal. Like I think actually moving forward when I tell the story, it's going to be the singer seal. Just like, yeah. being like, I have some notes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, the good news is I hit record. So we got all that. Um, <laughs> But we're going to start for real now. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. You're ready. Here we go. So, Sheena, you are a writer, and we talk to writers all the time, so we're already bored with that. And I'm fascinated by the fact that you are also a Muay Thai fighter. Is this true? Oh, my God. No. I – okay. This is this is what it is. My best friend from high school, he is a Muay Thai fighter. And he owns a gym in Toronto, and um, I get a discounted membership. They give me a kids membership because of my size. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so, so that's for about 10 years. Like that was my training and I suck. I'm terrible. Do you enjoy, you know, punching and kicking in that, that aspect of it? I, do. I love it so much. And so in Vancouver, actually, I, I, I hadn't, I've been here for about three years and I hadn't hit anything in a while and I was really hurting for it and actually went yesterday um, and did a little bit of training and, and yeah, it's fun. You actually relocated to Vancouver to write your book, which is set in Vancouver. But what about the new setting inspired you? The, the atmosphere of the West Coast really appealed to me and it felt very moody and with the rain and, and knowing that Nora, my main character, is a blues singer, it just felt like there was so much stuff here that I could really use to build a, a world. And Toronto, I, I was bored of, and um, and my life wasn't really working out there. And I was like, you know what? Let's just do something new and move out to the West Coast with no job and write a novel that no one has asked for and you don't know how to write. That makes perfect sense, Sheena. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're good at decision making, is what you're saying? <laughs> I make the worst decisions, but sometimes, like I don't know, I just get this instinct about something. And so at that time, I just had this instinct that. I got to do this. You're also an actor, which I could tell immediately when I saw you read uh, at the Noir at the bar in Toronto. You had a great performance quality to your reading. So when you're writing and revising, are you reading pages out loud and kind of performing to sort of hear how it sounds? Oh, God, that sounds like a nightmare. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Those are two completely different things for me. So your character Nora is a singer, and and Eric and I are musicians. If we were your backup band, and we apologize in advance, oh uh, what God. songs would we have to learn how to play? Me personally, okay. So you would have to learn all of Rihanna. I'm talking like, well, my favorite Rihanna song right now is "Love on the Brain," followed by "Hi." You guys don't know any Rihanna songs. Uh, uh, I I don't. Steve is. I know uh, a lot of Rihanna. <laughs> Love on the brain, higher. Um, do you guys know Gary Clark Jr.? Yeah, yes. I write to him a lot. Um, Please Come Home is one of my favorites. I love Please Come Home. Well, because Nora is a blues singer, so I would imagine that we would have to learn some, some blues. But that's not me personally. Right. I had to learn some things about the blues in order to write her. It just, it just came to me. Like, the music fit her. It doesn't fit me. I'm really just dipping my toes in into the canon of, of blues music and I, I feel like I'm growing through that because one of the things I, I sort of regret about my life is that I don't have a musical background at all like I can't play any instruments I clearly cannot sing <laughs> given my, my seal story I don't have that and so through Nora I get to learn a little bit about music and and try that on a little bit that seal story is one of the best stories we've ever heard and uh, we're gonna challenge you to top it well, I don't know that I can top it, but I. <laughs> but this is what happened after, because it really. Well, it part two. Yeah, it hurt me. There's a sequel. It hurt my feelings. feelings because, like, if you've never been glared at by a seal for just sitting around and like singing, so I I took a couple singing lessons. <laughs> and then you were determined to find that same seal and say, "Look how much better." I no, I. I this, <laughs> 
and I sang a little bit, but I don't know. Yeah, it was it wasn't much better to be honest with you. <laughs> Maybe it was just your choice of song. Maybe your voice is fine. The seal was just not into whatever you were singing that day. Are you implying that Rihanna is not a good song choice? No, I, I shouldn't have implied that. I'm sorry. It, I felt the implication as well, and I'm also offended. Oh wow! I don't know if we can be friends anymore. <laughs> I thought this, I thought this like started off really great, but no, no. <laughs> Sheena's giving me a stink eye like an angry seal right now. Anyway, back to your book, The Lost Ones. <laughs> right, that. <laughs> now, Nora goes to some dark, dark places. Why did you feel it was it was right for your story to drag her down so far? Um, I don't know. I think maybe maybe I'm a dark person. And also the inspiration behind the book was that um, I was a researcher for film and TV, and part of my job was to pay attention to the criminal justice system. And I was really affected by stories about gender violence. And then when Nora came to me, I thought, well, let's talk about the after now. Let's talk about what someone's healing or not healing looks like. And that's what came about, was this idea of this person who was very resilient, was not perfect, does not have any answers, really, but is still compelling nonetheless. We read that this was a planned trilogy. Is that true? That's what I told my agent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. But yeah, like, well, this is the thing is that I this is my first novel, and I basically said I'm going to write a novel, and then I quit my job and took off to write write a novel, and that's how it came about. So it wasn't that I'm going to plan this epic series of whatever because I have so much experience writing novels. I have I had no experience writing novels, and I've never taken a writing class. Yeah, so I didn't plan a trilogy. So aside from trying to make the rest of us feel bad for how easy it was for you. Um... <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> She's going to have to go take like empathy lessons now because she might have offended you. No. <laughs> Payback for the Rihanna thing. <laughs> no, no, it's it's jealousy. It's it's pure jealousy. But no, I mean, Steve and I have, have both written trilogies of of our own, and I'm just curious. Like, it, does three feel like sort of the, the right number of books, or or do you think that Nora is a character that could go even beyond that? I think she could go beyond that. But what I'm concerned about is, I wrote the book with a lot of heart to it like there was so much of, of me emotionally invested in it that I always want to make sure that whatever I write I really feel it and that I'm not you know just writing it to continue it that I actually really feel something about it and I really f and she feels as well yeah I mean definitely reading Nora things things get raw she she kind of lays it all out there she's she's a damaged character I guess is a good way to say it. She's a damaged character whose companion is a dog. Would you say that's because she doesn't trust humans? Absolutely, yeah. Do you trust humans? People are the worst. <laughs> I work with Steve, of course I don't trust humans. <laughs> and I no longer trust seals. <laughs> so we're wondering if you could recommend one book you read this year that was one of your favorites. Okay, well there's a book that I am rereading right now because 
I'm looking at music now. Like I said, I'm trying to educate myself a little bit more. And so Bel Canto, I just picked up yesterday. And I read it a long time ago when it first came out. But there's just something so beautiful about this book that I'm, I'm rediscovering as I read it again. And it just makes me feel so much. And so I recommend Bel Canto. I mean, I'm not sure a lot of people recommend Bel Canto, but this is the one that I'm reading right now that's like, oh my God, how did I forget that I loved you so much? What a weird and wonderful interview we had with Sheena, and I really thank her for exposing seals as the judgmental snobs they truly are. Seals are definitely the Simon Cowell of marine life. So, okay, Sheena gave her seal of approval to Bel Canto by Ann Patchett, but let's see what our next reviewer has to say. <laughs> did you just say seal of approval? Hell yeah, I did, buddy. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> Dude, was I ever hired? <laughs> This is David Nemeth. I write a crime fiction blog called Unlawful Acts, and I have a column at Do Some Damage. This past year, I've liked a lot of books, though Steve and Eric will only let me tell you about two. The first is Danny Gardner's A Negro and an Ofe, published by Down and Out Books. Danny's book just blew me away. Set in post-World War II Chicago area, the book is a mystery set in the separate and unequal worlds of black and white America, one of the must-reads of the year. And then a few weeks ago, Eric Pruitt's What We Reckon came out. It is published by Polis Books. Man, another winner here. If you've ever heard Eric read at Noir to Bar, you can't help but hear his voice in your head as you read along. A great read. Coming up in 2018 is a book by one of my favorite all-time writers, Marietta Miles. Her 2016 novella, Route 12, was astounding. Seriously, it is great. Her words are lyrical and her sentences are filled with sorrow. I am now waiting for her new book called May, which is coming out in a few weeks and is published by Down and Out Books. Well, at least one debut novel on that list. And who doesn't love a debut author, Steve? Communists, Eric. That's who. <laughs> <laughs> and since you mentioned debut authors, I went out and found you a real live one. Chuck Caruso, whose novel The Lawn Job is a down and dirty noir in the classic style but with a very modern day take on sex and violence. So Chuck, uh, congratulations on the lawn job. And uh, we're gonna put you in the debut author hot seat now, okay? All right, thank you. <laughs> now, I always assume that someone's first published novel is usually not the first novel they ever wrote. So do you have something stuffed in a drawer somewhere? Yeah, I have several somethings stuffed in drawers. This is probably about the fourth or fifth complete novel that I've, that I've finished. And this is probably the 10th or 12th draft of this novel. So uh, typical two decades of work that makes a, an overnight success of publishing a novel. <laughs> well, you're talking to two crime writers and crime readers. So when you talk about having several things stuffed in drawers, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? <laughs> On the advice of counsel, I decline to answer that question. <laughs> so what did you do to celebrate the fact that the lawn job was going to be published? I determined to, to never have to have to pour through it again, looking for typos and, and consistency errors. And that that's the reward, really, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, as you guys well know, they're just, I don't know where the typos come from. They just magically appear. Uh, and, and I feel free now to, to work on new things. So, you know, I've got a couple other projects that are going, and, and it feels good to sort of have that one out there in the world and, and, and have more to share. Do you feel like your relationship to the book changes over the course of time? Like when you have to talk about it or when you think about it, 
what is your relationship to the book now that it's out in the world? Yeah, absolutely. It, it changes. It's a strange thing because, you know, I, I've, I've been publishing short stories for, for a while. I, I got my first professional sale to Cemetery Dance back in the 90s. But this is the first time I actually have a book, you know, in the store with my name on the spine. And, and, and that's a very different thing. The book feels like a part of me, but it also feels like it's taken on a life of its own now, which, which is great. Uh, there, I found that there are certain passages that I tend to circle back to when I'm, when I'm doing readings or, or events. Um, so I, I like to not give spoilers at readings. So it's tricky to find passages that reveal character without necessarily giving away too much plot. And the murderer is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna start with the last page of the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now the lawn job is, it's not exactly a book that I would recommend maybe to my mother. Um, the, the my mom loves it. <laughs> Your mom loves it? She does. Kudos She's to her. buying copies and giving them to her friends. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the sex in it, especially, is it's explicit and it's free. There's a lot of sex. Yeah, it's often kinky. It is. <laughs> Do you? But it's not. It's, I should be clear. It's not porn. No, 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 no. no it's I've it, written it, porn, and this is not that. So, <laughs> well, then, then you would know. Back to the drawers. <laughs> But do you think that other writers like, you know, guys like James M. Cain or Jim Thompson, guys who wrote a lot of implied sex, like, do you think if guys like that were writing noir today, it would be a little more explicit like The Long Job? Yeah, I mean, you've hit on two of my favorite writers. So um, it, when I was writing The Long Job, I absolutely wanted to write something that would be in the vein of James M. Cain or Jim Thompson, but I wanted to update it for the, for the 21st century. And I do feel like this is this, these are issues that they would have dealt with if they were alive now. So, you know, hopefully the bones still feel like uh, double indemnity or something like that. But now we have legalized weed and crazy militias in the woods and uh, texting and transgender people living among us openly and they're part of our community. So I, I wanted to, um, to sort of express that. You also, uh, you, you write a lot of short stories in the horror and even the Western genres. So I why do. turn to noir for a novel? Well, you know, I, I, I feel like at core, I'm a crime writer. I feel like even when I'm writing horror or Western, it really comes out as crime. Uh, you mentioned Jim Thompson earlier. I wrote my master's thesis on, on Jim Thompson. So, you know, I'm pretty seeped in noir uh, all the way back. So then uh, the long job is out in the world. What is next for you? Well, I'm working on a new novel, a little bit more of a, a conventional crime novel uh, about a, a murder that happens. And then uh, my main character is an investigative journalist that gets pulled back into her hometown. And it's, uh, it's a drug overdose, but she's suspicious that it maybe is not a drug overdose. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a new area for me. But it's, it's still a lot of fun to write about uh, crime. And I think it's, important, it's an important way to explore our, our society. Deep. Yeah, I'm going to put right? you on the spot here really <laughs> fast. What's one book you read this year that you just loved? I guess if I had to call out one, I read uh, IQ by uh, Joe Ide. Uh, yeah, no, it's brilliant. I haven't read the new one yet, but uh, I'm, I'm eager to, to read that. Yeah, I think, I think he's doing phenomenal work. Nice restraint in not mentioning your own book. Well done. <laughs> Well, the year's almost over, Steve, and so is this episode. The, do we have time for one more reviewer to give us his pick for a book that stood out in 2017? Nope, there's no time left. Please. Nope, sorry, Steve, can't do it. What if he's Canadian? Well, I mean, if he was French-Canadian, maybe. Roll the tape. 
Hi guys, my name is Ben and I'm a book reviewer from Montreal, Canada. I've been asked to tell you about my favorite read of 2017 and this year is a good year to do that because there's only one book I really want to talk about and it's Give Up the Dead by Joe Clifford. Um, Give Up the Dead is the third book in this Jay Porter series. Long story short, Porter is a loser turned father and insurance investigator turned loser again and in Give Up the Dead he's asked to find a missing son of a wealthy businessman who has allegedly been kidnapped by one of these radical recovery groups who deprogram cult members and shit like that. What is so great about Give Up the Dead, what makes it even better than its excellent predecessor uh, Lamentation and December Boys is that Jay becomes obsessed with finding this kid in order to make peace with a painful death that occurred way behind in the first book. He's caught between the past he wishes to repair and the future he doesn't feel entitled to, which I thought was both nuanced and moving for such a brutal mystery. I highly advise reading the first two Jay Porter novels before getting into this one, but I promise it will pay off. Give Up the Dead is the only book in 2017 that gave me such an emotional experience. I both could not stop reading it and didn't want it to end. Jim Clifford is the real deal, guys. You have to try him out. Uh, if you want more suggestions though, you'll have to visit my website Dead and Follies, www.deadandfollies.com. It's like a house filled with books and movie suggestions. I hope to see you there. Okay, that really does it for this episode and for this year, but not without me asking a very important question. Steve, did you read anything good this year? Oh man, I read so many good books this year. A lot of them were already mentioned by the reviewers on this episode. Absolutely. They picked a lot of the books that were on both of our lists. Yeah, I was kind of furiously scratching things off as they were mentioning books that I had read, but there were a couple that I wanted to at least talk about here at the end of the year. The first one is Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, which is technically cheating since it came out in 2016, but hey, I read it this year. And I'm going to follow that one up with Afterlife by Marcus Seiki. You know, you and I have spoken a lot about how the state of mind you're in when you read a book has a lot to do with your relationship to that book. Yeah. Well, well, I read these books pretty much back to back. And even though they are written by two different authors and published a year apart, in my weird brain, they are thematically linked. And, and did I mention that they are both absolutely mind-blowing um, I couldn't recommend either of them highly enough. How about you, Eric? Yeah, the reviewers covered several of those books that I would have put on any list, like She Rides Shotgun and Safe and Lightwood. Uh, I did want to mention The the Smack by Richard Lang. Uh, that was a really fantastic uh, book and, and a great guest that we had on this year. The Ridge by John Rector was one of those novels that is sort of this hybrid of like crime and horror, sci-fi, like a little bit outside the realm, but was just totally fascinating to me. And I also want to mention the uh, the film adaptation of Small Crimes, Dave Zelterman's novel that sat on Netflix that came out this year. It, w- it was great. I think all in all, 2017 was a really great year for crime fiction. And from what I've seen, 2018's uh, not shaping up too bad, including, I do have to mention, Steve, your third Greg Salem book, Hang Time, which is out uh, just after the beginning of the year. January 16th. I'm, I'm very excited to see what people think about this third installment and uh, the kinds of really terrible things I put Greg and his friends through in this final installment of the trilogy. I, I know firsthand about the terrible things that you put people through. So I, I can only imagine what Greg's in for. <laughs> you know, now that you mention it, I guess I do owe Dan Malman an apology. <laughs> He's not the only one. <laughs> Okay, I'll send Kate an email too.
<laughs> and that brings the episode and the first year of writer types to a close. Eric, we did it. You know, it's been a real pleasure to spend time with you in the studio and out of it. We, we got out of the studio a lot for some great segments this year. Steve, this has been a real blast to do. The feeling is absolutely mutual, Eric. I mean, just think of all we've learned this year. Today, Zoe Sharp taught us how to murder someone with just your thumbs. Yeah, and Matthew Fitzsimmons taught us not to be a hero when your family is inevitably kidnapped. And Sheena Kamal taught us that seals do not like Rihanna. <laughs> that might be my favorite lesson in 12 months of doing this podcast. Well, you know, it, that one's right up there with, with all the crazy running up a tree when you're being chased by pigs nonsense from Steph Post. <laughs> there you go. We bookended the year perfectly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors all year long for joining us. We could not have had such an incredible first year of shows without you. And thanks to all the listeners who left a review or subscribed or told a friend about writer types. It all really helps. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. And you can find out more about Steve's books at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.